Hey everyone, it's Maurice. Before we start the show, I want to thank you all for listening and for your support, especially our Patreon members. If you're not a member of our Patreon page yet, check it out at patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you get an ad-free version of this episode. You get access to behind-the-scenes clips and videos, information on upcoming articles and reviews, and so much more. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path. All right, let's get on with the show. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook undoubtedly has some of the top designers in the world all working under one roof. But what does it actually take to be a designer there? I asked Becca Hare to find out. I think that's where listening comes into play. Uh, I think obviously you have to have broad understanding of design principles and be able to apply them. But I think that the most successful designers at Facebook are people who really listen, um, both to research and data and kind of the perspectives of people around them uh, instead of designing kind of in a silo. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Buffer is looking for a senior marketing designer as well as a mobile product designer. These are both remote positions. Design Action Collective is looking for a web developer slash front end developer as well as a production designer slash graphic designer in Oakland, California. AARP in Washington, D.C. is looking for an editorial director. And General Design Co. in Washington, D.C. is also looking for a graphic designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether it's beautiful digital art, handy tools to help you do your work, or a site for your project or cause, you'll find things on Glitch that remind us the web can still be a fun, creative place full of unexpected surprises. Get started today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Millions of people and businesses around the world trust MailChimp to publish the right content to the right person at the right place at the right time. Build your brand, sell more stuff, find your people, and tell the world your story. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. 
Now for this week's interview. So September is HBCU month here on Revision Path, and this week's guest is the multi-creative Delany West. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Delany West, and I like to go also by my hashtag, Be Super Creative. I help people and organizations establish creative visions for ideas, projects, products, and brands essentially helping people figure out how to market. And so a lot of times organizations or individuals, they have an idea, they have a concept, and they're not quite sure how to get that nugget of an idea, which is in their head or on a napkin, into an actual product. They don't understand how to develop it, create it. They don't understand how to import it. Or when you think about a project, level work. How do you get something started? How do you manage that process? What are the types of people that you need to contribute to a project for it to be successful? Mm-hmm. How do you budget for a project? So it could be you know, a visual arts-based project or it could be a, an actual consumer product, something like a pen or a pair of scissors. Okay. Walk me through like a typical day. Like what are the kind of things that you're doing now? Um, I'm working for a client in Arkansas. And so presently I'm helping a team really, you know, better define their process. And so, you know, I'm working with a group of people who are incredibly talented, but they are pivoting to a type of product that they don't have a lot of experience with. And so really my day is, you know, working with um, a graphic artist or an illustrator, um, working with the art director or the photographer who's on site, answering questions about, some of the products that we're developing from our overseas partners in Asia or other parts of the world, advising some of the senior executives on process and, and some of the things that I think we, we can do. And it, it really is, you know, when I think about what role I wear, I do feel like I am a motivator and a cheerleader for some of the things that are happening because folks that need leadership and guidance they're unsure of a lot of things. They're unsure of what direction to go. And a lot of times folks are heading the right direction. They just need the encouragement or they just need to know how to be more efficient. And so I find that that I'm doing a lot of leading and a lot of coaching, some leading and some coaching, but really work, you know, working with teams, cross-functional teams and trying to figure out how to get everybody rowing in, in the same direction. Talk to me about the early moments of your career. I'm really interested to find out how you got to this place where you're at now. And of course, we'll go into kind of some of the highlights of your career as well. Oh, goodness. So I found my first rollout of college via New York Times actual print ad. That was a long time ago. (laughs) And I answered it. um, And it was for a company in New Jersey that was looking for a junior illustrator. And I you know, had gotten my uh, design degree at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. And I had done a year, about a year of work at Auto Trader. They were a print uh, publication that sold uh, or that had basically one ads or for sale ads for vehicles, boats, motorcycles and motorcycles. That was the most creative thing I had done with my degree. I moved back to New Jersey and I took this job and really I was creating illustration illustrations for stickers. So stickers for kids. 
And the changing point for me during my time at that company, and I think had been there for six months, and I was the fourth illustrator on staff. So I was the fourth person that they had brought in. The owners asked me, they basically told me, you know, we want you to to know the process. We want you to know how we manufacture the product. And so it was in the early days of companies really developing products and having them manufactured overseas. And at this point, it was in Taiwan. So they uh, put me on a plane and flew me to Taiwan. And I spent about two weeks talking to factories and going into their factory floors and learning about their equipment and machinery. And from that that point on, all the projects that I would design, I'm also thinking about how to leverage the capabilities of that equipment. At the time, I think um, it was four-color process printing. There was a machine that could print four-color process printing. So we worked with the printer to kind of jerry-rig it to print eight colors. You know, nobody had done this before. No one was doing it in the industry. So as I'm developing product, I'm thinking about leveraging that eight color process printing. And it really made a difference in the end product because no one was doing it. So from that point on, having knowledge about the engineering and the production process, it just added so much value to my thought process as a designer, because I'm also thinking about how it looks and how great it looks, but I'm also thinking about how it works and how it costs. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of, you know, a lot of places that you go for a lot of companies, a lot of creative consumer product companies have someone that focuses on sourcing, someone that focuses on managing the product, and someone that focuses on design. And as you can imagine, you know, a product team, you have to have lots of different touch points and, and meetings to understand a project and to move it forward. Well, when you, you have the ability to wear all three of those hats, you can move a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And so that's just how I've been working for the last 20 years. It's a little weird. It's a little weird combination of skill sets. But I'm, I'm so fortunate to have had basically bosses who, who allowed me to learn this stuff. Well, I think it's also important to note that you really, you know, you, you said you started out at this place. That's really where you're able to grow your career for the most part. You started off as this sort of junior illustrator and then worked your way all the way up to doing, to being the vice president and general manager. Yeah. What was rewarding was coming into a business for one brand. And so I joined for one small brand. And when I left, I believe they had acquired two other companies, several other teams in in other states. And so I'm managing not only the the creative team that I had grown up and helped to build, but uh, managing creative teams that the company had acquired. So that was just a nice process because I got to really be a part of a lot of different groups of creatives and really trying to help them facilitate their process under new ownership and taking the best bits of what they did well and taking the best bits of what this group did well and just learning a lot from people who had been doing this this work longer than me. The other thing that's helped me is just really been open to learning and really being open and okay with having to do more than one thing. So I know a lot of times when you're with a growing company or a startup, now it's a startup, but when I started, it was just a small growing company. We did everything. 
you know, we did the catalogs, we did the photo shoots, we did the color correcting, we did everything. Mm-hmm. We did a little bit of marketing. And so anytime we had to do something else, you had the people that would complain, you know, hey, I only want to draw, I only want to design. And then you had the people like me who's, who looked at it as an opportunity to put another skill in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when my bosses asked me, hey, you know, what do you want to learn next? I said, hey, I'd like to learn a lot more about sourcing. You know, I got that opportunity to spend more time with vendors and learn about the production process. So, you know, I've always taken the opportunity to pick up the slack, you know, in a growing business where they needed someone to just get it done, learned how to do it and added it to my skill set. You know, it's interesting. You know, I feel like it's it's more of a I don't want to say old school, because that, that dates me. That dates both of us, actually. But I, feel, <laughs> but I feel like if you really like sort of came of age with design and maybe the like late 90s going into the early 2000s, you had to sort of do everything. There were no specialized roles. And it's interesting now. I mean, I've, I've talked with designers for the show and things like that. And it's so interesting how specialized people are to only do one type of thing. And if they're asked to do something else, it's like, oh, well, we have another team that does X, Y, Z. And these are often in-house people. I don't know if they necessarily stay at those in-house positions. But yeah, I think being open to learning and being open to wanting to do more is probably how you're able to sort of climb up the ladder, so to speak. I mean, in addition to allowing me to to grow in my career, it just made my work incredibly interesting. Yeah. You know, it was, I never was complacent. I mean, I never found myself bored with what I was working on. I was lucky to work for some guys that were really great leaders. They weren't afraid to take risks. They weren't afraid to enter into new product categories. And through their effort to grow the business, they gave us in the team that I work with, they gave us a lot of opportunity to try new things. And also, we were afforded the chance to make a lot of mistakes. Because, you know, when you're developing a new widget or a new category, and when I say new category, if a company today decides they want to go into the scissor business and they've never sold a scissor in their life, you know, I was a part of a team that had to figure out, okay, which factory is going to make this scissor? We got to go find a factory to make the scissor. Now, we understand the machinery, you understand, you know, the production lines and the capacity. Now, let's figure out how to develop and design the best scissor that we can. And so everything we had to learn because we didn't, we weren't scissor people. And so any category that these guys wanted to go into was almost like an adventure because we had to figure it out. So I was never bored from the perspective of the same product type. But I was also never bored because, you know, we had to wear so many different hats. So to your point, I guess there are a lot of businesses where they're mature or they're still growing, but you do have to create some structure for your creative teams, you know, for efficiency. Mm-hmm. I always like to make sure that my creative teams, whenever people are interested to learn something new, or they want to do more than one thing, I always welcome it. And I always give them a chance to learn it and be expert at it. You know, why should we place someone in a box? You know, if you're a a graphic designer, why is that the only thing that you can do in this organization? You also have to be a leader. And to truly be a leader, you can't be afraid to allow those around you to be greater. 
or to really shine. You know, you've got to, it's your job to create other leaders. And so I find that a lot of people in positions of leadership or management, they are, they just aren't comfortable with themselves and and they, they don't know how to do it. They're a little threatened by, hey, you know, if I teach this person how to fish, then I'm out of a job. So I find that when I mentor someone and I give them the opportunity to learn as much as they can, I mean, they come to work and they love the experience. Mm -hmm. That's how I work creative teams. When I tell managers and CEOs about the process, they always kind of look at me a little, you know, they turn their head and look at me and then they think about the efficiency and they think about the cost savings and they say, wow, you know, I never really thought about it, but that makes a lot of sense. What was the biggest change for you as your career kind of made this shift as you started going up the ranks? The biggest change I'll say, I'll, and I'll give you a change that I dislike not being able to be connected to the work. Mm. So the higher you go up in, in an organization in terms of title or responsibilities, Of course, you move a little bit further away from actually doing the work. And that's why we become designers, because we enjoy the creative part of discovery and making something. Well, when you're in management, you are managing budgets and people and timelines and spreadsheets and goals. And sometimes you go for weeks without, you know, opening up a design program. And so that is the part that I dislike about the process and I always try to keep as much as I can one or two creative projects to myself, you know, to keep my skill level up. But, you know, usually I'm always handing it off to someone and really working closely with them so that they can, you know, realize the project. That's the part that I hate (laughs) about advancing in my career as a creative, as a designer. Now, as someone who leads these creative teams, Are there certain types of things that you look for from designers when it comes to hiring? Absolutely. You know, whenever I do a, whenever it's time to hire someone, we always make sure that we have a well-crafted job description, very specific about what we're looking for. And the first round of kind of review is resume. I'll just tell you, I recently reviewed a resume and it was from someone who claimed maybe Uh, to be expert, maybe 15 years of experience. And the resume was seven pages long. Wow. And I said, (laughs) I said, there's no way you have this experience because you've given me a seven page resume. I said, get out of here. I didn't (laughs) say that to them, but I said that in my head. But the resume is really for anybody in visual arts. That's the first screening process. If it aesthetically doesn't work, it's at the bottom of the pile or it's in the, it's in the garbage. You know, if I can't click onto your online content to find information easily, you've got to market yourself to people and managers that are super busy. You've got to make them giving you thumbs up for an interview easy. So you got to think about them and think about what they're dealing with. You got to make your package so easy to manage that they want to bring you in. Also, I do like to review portfolios, but I almost always ask designers to bring in their sketchbook. You know, bring in your dirty thought process sketchbook, the one that you keep by your bed, the one that you keep in your studio. Yes, bring that one. And so they'll bring me this nice, beautiful portfolio. 
And sometimes the first thing I go to is, is the sketchbook because I want to see what your creative thought process is. I want to see, you know, how well you can illustrate. There are a lot of creatives who have mastered going straight to the uh, design program. And when you have lots of time to perfect that portfolio, of course it looks great. But I want to see your messy sketchbook. I want to see the kind of things that you, you develop when you're not doing a school or work project. And that tells me a lot about a potential creative person, um, a creative designer. And then the last thing that I always ask about is when I'm reviewing a portfolio, I always ask them to tell me who are the players in this work? Because nine times out of 10, when you're working on a project, there's got to be at least one other person who helped you get to that point. But who's the team behind this work? And People that are able to go through that process and explain to me how all these people contributed to this end result, those are the people that I look more favorably upon because they're acknowledging the creative process happened with a larger group. They're acknowledging the fact that they know how to work within that collaborative structure. And as you know, that is how things happen a lot of times within corporate design environments or even someone that's, you know, working in a studio at home. You know, you're definitely working with people on the other side of that brief. It's not just you. Those are the things that I look for in addition to a slew of other things. But for visual artists, those are the three main areas that I pay attention to. Yeah, oftentimes I'll have designers that will ask me, you know, I guess as they're sort of putting their portfolio together things like how should they how should they structure it, what kind of work should they have, et cetera. I'll usually always tell them to have something that shows that they have a, a degree of, I guess, comprehension about the product. I'll usually tell them to do a case study or something mm-hmm. like and the case study will involve a lot of those elements. It'll hopefully show their design process. It will talk about who the players were in the project. Because what I often, <laughs> what I often tend to find is that a lot of designers are great mechanics in a way. Mm-hmm. Like they're, like they're a great set of hands. If you've got a problem, boy, they can get in there and fix it and it's good to go. But the actual process behind it, eh, it's that part I've found has been trickier to get out of them. I'm curious about the sketchbook though. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. I don't even keep a sketchbook. I mean, I, I like doodle on stuff, but I don't keep yeah. like a, like a book, but no, that's, that's real interesting. I didn't even, huh. I like that. Yeah. I, I actually really like that. That's a, that's a dope idea. For the work, for the brands that I, I work with, you know, uh, creating original content is super important. So we do a lot of, I've done a lot of hiring of illustrators. So designers that have illustration talent, and usually I'm looking for someone that has some incredible ability to to sketch and draw what they see or sketch and draw some character illustration. So I'm always looking for that type of uh, creative. But I'm almost always knowing that I am going to have to teach this person how to be a product person. So I never, unless I'm hiring someone that's at a, a management level, I'm always pretty much looking for people that I can teach and that I can mentor. So I don't think I've ever been in a situation where, you know, I've I've said, I'm expecting you to have X, Y, Z, because a lot of the, a lot of the things that you do in product development, you can't learn that you you won't learn it in design school. Mm -hmm. So almost everything, almost every process that we have is also custom to the organization and to the product. And you really have to teach it. So I look for ability. I look for talent. 
I all, you know, it's always a bonus because, you know, when you ask the questions, okay, you've got to know creative cloud, you know, you've got to be able to master certain aspects of creative cloud, but it's a bonus if you know Microsoft Office Suite. And it's really great if you know how to manipulate Excel. If I get a yes to all of those, then I know I can work with a person and really, really teach them and train them. Now, I want to talk a little bit also about design leadership, which you've, you know, just kind of touched on just now. You know, when you were at uh, Wilton Brands, when you were at Faber-Castell, you led these creative teams there across different brands, different categories. What did that experience kind of just teach you in general? I guess, I guess that the chaos of product development is the same within every organization. There's a quiet, organized chaos that happens because everybody's trying to create product. You know, sales reps want product yesterday. You're competing against 30, 40 brands. And so there's never a downtime for creatives to really ruminate and think and, and do their best work. So my biggest challenge is tr- trying to create that white space, trying to create that quiet space for these teams to have the time to consider an idea, to go out and do the research, to ruminate and and rest on the idea and come back with some solutions. I find that a lot of uh, environments, they want things yesterday and it's impossible to do any good work when you're rushed, but because, you know, the market demands that you're always churning out new product you know, the, the product teams suffer. So that's one of the things that I learned. I learned I learned that I, I could not be afraid to tell it like it is to executive management. You know that they don't want to hear that creative people need time to go and reflect and sit back and they might need to go out and do store visits or go to the museum. But I, you know, I really have to push for those things for best creative process. And I just learned to really qualify and quantify everything that happens in a creative environment by tying it to dollars uh-huh. and just just you know equating a number to every function and and creativity can be abstract and talking about the benefits of certain creative process to a numbers driven organization is really hard so i always try to quantify things related to a, a creative team team's budget and that usually helps me accomplish what needs to happen to give those people the time that they need to develop. Earlier on, you mentioned that there had been some, some people at your job that really kind of helped you out. I'm I'm guessing these kind of, these people sort of served as mentors in a way. Who have been some of your mentors over the years as you've gone through your design journey? Oh, goodness. Really? uh, I would like to say that one of the last CEOs for the company that I worked for in New Jersey, it was EK Success Wilton, and he was a numbers guy. He was an accounting guy. His enthusiasm for creative process was infectious. You know, you had a, a, an accounting guy that really could understand the possibilities of creating new things. And so he really allowed me, along with his business partners, really, I have to say all of them, they really gave me the bandwidth and the opportunity to to grow within that business. You think a, an accounting person that's a CEO couldn't understand, you know, the importance of design process and creativity, you know, 
absolutely the opposite. I think the level of respect that he had for me and my ability to create, the comfort level he had for what I was able to accomplish allowed him to trust me to to do more and, and to say, hey, you know, if she wants to learn sourcing, let's give her an opportunity to learn sourcing. So just leadership from, I mean, it's really important to have strong senior leaders within an organization, but to have a CEO who just gets it, that just made the world a difference for me. That made everything different for me and, and my what, 14 years at that organization. I have a question here. This is actually from one of our design writers and patrons. She's also been on the show before, Sella Lewis. And she says, I'm a design professional with more than 10 years of work experience. One thing I'm noticing is that as I move further along in my career, it's harder to network across to black design professionals within my peer group. Given that you have worked in executive slash C-suite level positions, how do you combat the challenge of networking across your peer group of black design talent? Okay, that's a good one. And I will say forums such as this one, what I will do uh, when this content is available, I will follow the hashtags and I will try to connect with anyone who is connected to this project. Social media has made it that much easier to connect. So I follow a lot of hashtags. I follow a lot of organizations that emphasize the importance of uh, lauding uh, Black creatives. Another trick that I have is when I go to a trade show. And so this is finding professionals, finding your peers in your specific industry. Mm-hmm. When I go to a trade show, I really troll the hashtags and the locators for booths and events And so usually you go to a a trade show, there is always some type of networking event. There's always some type of forum. So I'm always going to forums and, you know, even at the hotels affiliated with the event, hanging out in the lobbies. And when I see one of us, I gravitate towards us and I introduce myself and I always make the connection. So really just being attentive to and, and, you know, the hashtag strategy works because you can't travel to every event. Mm -hmm. So you can't travel to every trade show, but you can follow the hashtags and you can kind of follow people's feeds. And sometimes you can find some really cool black designers that way, but, but really taking advantage of the forums and the networking opportunities at trade shows. LinkedIn has been amazing going to groups like uh, black enterprise. There are a lot of subgroups. There are a lot of specific name groups that you can join and just really connect with the most active people in those forums. You know, some of them are kind of sleepy, but some of them are active. I'm a joiner. You know, I do a lot of joining and interacting with a lot of groups on Facebook that are specific to black design, but that's how I've been able to do it. Thank goodness for social media, because before that it was really difficult. Yeah, we just had a piece that was up on the website about it's an oral history of the organization of black designers. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that. Group. That was one of the first ones. Absolutely. Oh, okay. I, All right. I, I was uh, introduced to them while I was still in Hampton. Yeah, that was one of the first groups that I knew about. <laughs> yeah, and I know that they were kind of around and I mean, they're still around now, but certainly pre-social media, they were really the vanguard in terms of putting together events where black designers could create, I'm sorry, not create, where they could connect. Sorry about that. Where black designers could connect. And I think, you know, like you said, these ways of connecting now through social media 
are really super important. We actually had a piece up on the site, I want to say this was maybe a few years ago, about whether Black designers and developers were actually connecting at conferences. It's something that I know that I've heard about from peers of mine and something I've even experienced where sometimes you'll go to a design event and you see the other Black person there. <laughs> and, you, and you're like subconsciously maybe trying to connect with them and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. So yeah, I, I like that hashtag strategy. That's actually a, a pretty good idea. Because like you said, you can't go to every event, but you can no. follow on Twitter or Absolutely. Facebook or wherever. Absolutely. Now, speaking about your, your time in Hampton, we've had several people on the show. This is HBCU month that we're airing this episode in. But we've had several people on the show that have come from Hampton. What was that experience like for you? You know, I think my HBCU experience was exactly what I needed for that point in life. You know, I actually had an op- an, an option. I had a choice. It was FIT in New York City or Hampton. And I and I like my mother decided at the last minute to attend HBCU. She attended Benedictine South Carolina and I chose to attend Hampton. You know, I think I would have been a probably a lot further. You know what? Let me take that back. I think I would have been a lot more focused on one specific discipline had I gone to Fashion Institute of Technology. I think going to Hampton, you know, and, and I'll just say they had a really good art program. Was it as good as potentially what they do at FIT? No. But I think for me in that, you know, I needed that cultural connection at that point in my life. And I got a really good foundation in understanding technology. I think that was the year, it was like the first two years that schools had Macintoshes in university. And that for me was key. And I have to attribute my experience at Hampton. I'm sure it happened everywhere else, but my first interaction with a Macintosh was at Hampton University. And I think I participated in the student purchase program. I, I pr- bought one of the design units and I got the software. And that was a game changer, you know, because without that training, you know, I wasn't as comfortable as pe- perhaps I, I would have been uh, without it. You know, I was able to go right into um, a work environment and be productive. Uh, I do a lot of work with design schools in recruiting interns and talent. And I will say these schools are amazing. And I just wonder how different my career would have been had I had I you know, gone to a design school or had I gone to FIT. I don't know that I would be where I am today. I don't know that I would be so adventurous and wanting to learn and do different things. I think I probably would have been probably would have had more narrow of a focus had I chosen to go to FIT. But who knows? <laughs> Let's talk about that recruiting part. You say that you are talking to a lot of schools. Are these just design and art schools? Or are you talking to students at HBCUs as well? When it comes to building a program for a business to sustain creative talent, it's not so much recruiting from a different location. It's really about recruiting local talent. So it's working with the university that's in their backyard and partnering with the design chair and finding out what kind of program they have, what type of internship program they have, and when is portfolio review. It's really about being active in your local community and and really nurturing the education program 
in terms of business relationships. And so it's kind of like certain areas of the country don't really have a good recruiting process for creatives. And you really have to go in and do the work and create a recruiting process for the business. And so if you don't do that, getting great design talent will break a budget for business. So I like to set up a model where the business and the creative team and the art directors are are having a relationship with a local design school to bring in design talent and to, you know, bring them in on an internship program, commit to really training them and nurturing them. And they're not getting coffee and they're not just doing mock-ups. They're doing meaningful work. Um, And when the opportunity comes, giving them a job. Now the goal is hopefully developing someone that will want to be with you long-term. The calling up agencies like Creative Group, to get design talent, that's just not an option for a lot of businesses. So you have to kind of develop the process, lo- de- develop your talent locally. And then you even think about that local component, because oftentimes companies will contact me, they'll contact Revision Path, like they've found out about the site, they've looked at the archives, and they're like, well, we're trying to reach out to HBCUs, and we're trying to diversify our teams. And oftentimes, these are companies that are not in the same geographic location as a lot of these HBCUs. So for example, these will be companies out in Silicon Valley, but majority of HBCUs are on the East Coast. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I guess, how they could bridge that divide, even if they're not at the local level. So how they bridge the divide between uh, more diverse talent or African-American talent? Yeah, because what I think is happening is they too are looking at the local level. They're looking at you know whoever is in their backyard. But if it ain't a lot of black folks there, then it's kind of hard right. to find, you know. But you know what? I fault the programs. I fault the programs at the university because mm. the opportunity is there. You just have to pick up the phone and do the work. You know, it's ultimately what's driving decisions at a university. You know, what's most important? And sometimes that's not a priority. It's a priority for me to reach out and make things possible for students because I, you know, someone made it possible for me to be where I am today. And I realize how important that is for students, uh, African-American students, and, and especially uh, women. And so I do the work because if we don't do the work, who's going to do the work? It's, I think anything can happen, but, you know, someone's got to pick up the phone and start the process. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've I've tried working with some HBCUs in the past, and it's been challenging. <laughs> it's, yeah. been, it's been a different level of challenging in in some respects. I mean, I I went to an HBCU. I went to to Morehouse, and when I tell you, even to my alma mater, it's been like hitting my head against a brick wall. It's like I don't understand. I don't understand. You know, I don't know. It's it's really. It's really odd. One thing that I found with just kind of doing my research through my time working with working with AIGA and looking at HBCUs is actually trying to see how many of them have some sort of a design program of some sort. And it may not necessarily be, you know, product design, but something where students are at least learning these sort of visual concepts. Yeah. I'm finding a lot of HBCUs have, they've got a fine arts program, they've got a performing arts program. They may not necessarily have visual arts or illustration or something. There are some schools that are outliers. Hampton certainly is one of them that have these kind of robust design programs that go back for decades. With other schools, eh, not so much. So it's it's hard to kind of gauge what the the impact is. And it's especially interesting for me because companies are companies are seeing the value. Well, I don't want to say I don't know if I can say they're seeing the value in it or they're seeing the dollar signs 
in HBCUs, but they certainly are are realizing that they need to put in some uh, they need to put in some sweat equity, so right. to speak, at these right. at these schools. That it's not just you know you can't just go and just take what you need and then not try to put back into the community. Well, you know what it is. You know, you remember there was a time when your mom said, "Well, how are you going to make money in a career in art?" <laughs> you know, Absolutely. come on. I'm sending you to where and you are studying what? That's true. You know that just wasn't flying. <laughs> no, that's true. That's very true. And you know where I was lucky in that my both my parents were creative, you know, my okay. mom was an artist and a designer. And so she understood I didn't have to fight that battle with her. So I had an advantage from the beginning. So I do think to your point, it that could be a good project for a, a group of professionals like us. You know, how do you further the opportunity within HBCUs to be exposed to arts programs? You know, how do you begin the conversation? You know, how do you encourage the the chair of a department to pick up the phone to see what opportunities are in corporate for graduates? Like who starts the conversation? That's true because the companies are at least, at least from what I can tell, they're starting to try, but I think they don't know where to begin in terms of, I think they look at one school as like whatever school is doing the best, which in some cases, at least from what I've seen, has mostly been Howard. They've been looking at Howard University. And it's interesting because I'll talk to companies and I'll tell them they need to look at Hampton. I'll point to like the five or six people on the show that have went from Hampton to where they are now. I'm like, mm-hmm. and, not, and not to, you know, not to not to give Howard any slight, not to give Hampton any slight. But, you know, I think companies are looking at just one place. If they see it's working for someone else. Right. And they're like, oh, well, it'll work for us, which might right. not be the case. Right, right. Now, you know, Mr. Morehouse, man, you know you're wrong for stirring the pot. Because <laughs> the I see what you did there. I see I, what I, you did that's there. That's why I said I didn't want to give any, you know, any, any slight either way, you know. I would give you a pass. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, you know, you mentioned your, your family was creatives. Were they really kind of heavily influential with you getting into this field? Oh, absolutely. My mom was so creative. I mean, she was always making something and sewing something. And my dad was building something. And they had these cool, eclectic, art, arty friends. And I was exposed to all of this growing up. But it also meant that my mom had me in practicing arts from, you know, piano and ballet and, and just um, fine arts. So I was exposed to it pretty early. And I knew enough about it to know, and so did she, that that I could have a career doing it. So I think, you know, being exposed to it with creative parents is great. I don't know what I would have done if I had not had that background. I went to an artist talk a few days ago here, and it was so interesting. There was a guy there, him and his dad were there. And it, it was interesting because I, well, first of all, I go to a fair amount of design events in Atlanta. And you would think, you know, it's Atlanta, you'll see a fair amount of black people at these events. Not so much. Sometimes mm-hmm. you do, sometimes you don't. In this case, it was interesting that I saw a father and a son because it was a, a fairly small event. It was maybe about 10 people there. And, you know, the the guy, he was in the, he was actually as an intern at the museum where the, where the talk was at, and he was mentioning all this stuff, and then he was talking about, yeah, and this is my dad. And his dad pipes up and is like, yeah, and I was a graphic designer. I was like, oh, <laughs> And the weird, like, rarity of me seeing that, I was like, this is a, like, father and son 
graphic designer at an event. Like I never see that. Wow. I never yeah. get to see that. It was, it was wild. It was, it was yeah. I got to talk to both of them, but it was really sort of like, wow. Um, yeah. Kind of exposing, you know, the father was like exposing the son, like, you know, telling him this is what he wants to do. And I'm here to support him, of course. So, you know, whatever you can, whatever advice you can give, feel free. So no, that was, yeah, that was no, that's something. fantastic. When you look at everything that you're doing right now, what are you most excited about at the moment? Oh, goodness. At the end of the day, like I was thinking about that question the other day. I was thinking about why do I like doing what I'm doing? It's like being excited about the process of creating something. It's almost like a competition when you're creating a product. It's creating something that somebody's going to like. You know, because I'm designing product because why somebody's got to go to the store and figure out they need it or they want it. They're going to pull out their credit card, pay for it, take it home. It's going to make them happy or serve a purpose or make their lives better. That's kind of cheesy. But when I think about it is if I do everything right, I'm going to make their experience better. I'm going to make their life better. I'm going to solve a problem for them. And if I do a really good job, going to make a lot of money in process of doing it. So it's it's each project for me is an opportunity to be successful. You know, each project for me or each thing that I work on if it's a design uh, a design challenge or it's a product or a project, it's being able to do your best work to solve the creative problem and to create a solution but to excel at, at doing it. It's like the cycle of competition. And maybe, you know, maybe there is some um, addiction to that because, you know, I also was a runner and, you know, you talk about that 20 days of habit. And once you get into that 20 days of habit, you're addicted because Mm -hmm. you're addicted to the endorphins. You're addicted to the high of completing it. I am willing to bet you any money that there is some type of high that you get when you create a creative when you complete a creative process and then when you find out that you're what you created is actually doing well i'm almost willing to bet that's what it is i have no other explanation other than that i just enjoy the process Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's someone who i had on the show goodness several episodes ago but she's a a designer in uh, new york city she actually calls herself a chronic creator (laughs) <laughs> and and she really gets off on just continually making new projects. One project launches. She's right on to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. I mean, brilliant work. She's won a Webby Award. I don't know how more people don't know about her. And they, her name is uh, is Kim Goldborn. She is fantastic. I mean, once she might be working on a fashion line and now she might be working on an app for people to find barbershops or she might be working on this. Like she's always doing something and i even for myself when i think about that joy of always making something my mom would always tell me you know even if you have a good job you always need to kind of have something on the side right like you need to have mm-hmm. something that kind of stokes the fire the the whatever your nine to five is you've got to have a five to nine i suppose so yeah i'm pretty sure there's probably some kind of study that says you know you get some kind of endorphin rush or yeah. chemical rush from doing yeah. that But I'm going to tell you why a lot of people, you wonder why it's so hard to find other designers and why a lot of people don't know about the work that we do is because, you know, we spend all of our time creating um, something which is the star. You know, the things that we create, 
that's the thing. That's the thing that gets the attention. And we're completely satisfied with it because those are our babies. Those are our creations. We are always working in the background, right? And when we're done with the first thing, we're on to the next. And so we don't step back and give ourselves a chance to talk about ourselves. Sometimes we can't do it. Sometimes, you know, projects so confidential, we really can't talk about it. But through what you're doing with Revision Path, and I have to thank you, it you're doing some really good work because I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations where I've been kind of asked not to talk about myself. I've been kind of asked not to talk about what I do and what my contributions are to the organization, you know, and I have my suspicions as to why. But if we don't talk about our own contributions and our own abilities, how do we teach another generation of, of creatives, you know, black kids growing up that they can do this? So I thank you for the opportunity to share. But, you know, there are just not enough platforms for us, and we're not the story that gets highlighted, you know, a lot of the times. No, that's very true, and and thank you for saying that, because I really, you know, when I started Revision Path, that's what I wanted to have was kind of this, I don't want to say this alternate history, that's probably not the best way to put it, but I knew that friends of mine were doing great work, I knew I was doing great work, but yet when I saw what was being reflected in the design media, there were hardly ever any any black people, let alone people of color in general, but certainly there were very few black designers. You didn't really know what they were doing. Absolutely. Um, and with Revision Path, to be able to have them tell their story in their own words, like when I did the fifth year anniversary episode, I kind of told people like, you know, my goal is really to kind of just hold the mic and let you all talk about what it is that you do. Because for a majority of the folks on the show, it's their first time anyone has really talked to them about it. They yeah. just kind of have done the work. They've done the work. They've moved on to the next thing, but no one has actually said, hey, talk about this project. What was your yeah. thought behind it? Why did you do this? Why did you do X, Y, Z? So it's been uh, it's been interesting. And I, and I have to tell you, you know, <laughs> people are probably surprised. People tend to be surprised when I tell them how many times I get turned down by people when it comes to me asking folks to come on the show. Because many people aren't, maybe they're just not there yet. I remember I reached out to this one young woman and, you know, I saw her stuff and I was like, yeah, I really love to have you on the show. And she's like, you know, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not there yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to, to come and talk about it. And I was like, but, but that's why I want to talk to you. Like, I want to talk to you at this point where you're at now, because maybe no one else has done that. So, yeah. You know, I guess it's, I guess it's about being comfortable. You know, you have to be comfortable. Talk, it's hard to talk about yourself. It's hard to talk about yourself and talk about what you've done. You know, people have a problem with it. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to you want to be doing? I've thought about all the brands that I've helped to build. <laughs> and I really, really want to be in a position where I've put in the work to present my own brand, be it consumer product, be it other content. But I want to be, be in a position where I, I've put in the work to position, you know, my own my own name and my own product in uh, the marketplace. And that's so hard to do when you pour so much uh, work and, and dedication into other projects. So for me, that is a goal. And, you know, it's it's about planning. It's about dedicating time to get there. And I know that. But, you know, I'm always chasing the next shiny new thing, too. And so, like I, I said a few minutes ago, that creative process for me 
feed something and I just have to, to take some time to make sure that it, it feeds my own personal brand goals. Mm-hmm. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, I can be found on Twitter. It's Delany West at, at Twitter. But I'm also on Instagram and I just, you know, I believe I, I just do a lot more personal sharing on Instagram. It's Delany West at Instagram. And those are those are the two best places. I, I'm all, I also have a website, which is for my brand, besupercreative.com and also delanywest.com. But I think I have the most fun and do the most sharing on Instagram. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, Delany West, I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really feel like, you know, you've, you talked a lot about how designers can kind of help not only, you know, sort of get a foothold in this industry, but how they can work to build themselves up wherever it is that, that they might be at. I, I know that the field that you're working in is, is very fast paced. You're doing design management, you're overseeing teams and all of this, you know, all of these sorts of things. And so it's just good to kind of be able to talk to someone that, has seen the experience from the ground up, who has started, how's that Drake song go? Started from the bottom, now we're here. N- yeah. Now you're here, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's good to be able to talk to someone that, that yeah. has that perspective and can offer that to our audience. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to come and share. You're doing some some tremendous work, and I can't tell you, you make it easy for me to share and talk about myself. And hopefully you will be able to find more creatives who are willing and comfortable to share their stories because we need to hear about each other. We need to hear more about each other. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Delany West and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Delany and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. With a community of over 2 billion people, the design team at Facebook works on a diverse range of problems. Everything Facebook designs is done at scale, so research, content strategy, data, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook Design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Now, if you've seen Glitch, you might think it looks like a toy, but let me tell you, it's not. It runs on the exact same infrastructure and engine that the best developers in the world use to run their apps. And it's all built around a friendly community of coders, designers, developers, artists, activists, and educators. Basically, people just like you. So get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, And they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker.
If you liked this episode, then please do us a huge favor by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.